So as Robbie mentioned, we're going to be continuing our series today. This is the third Sunday of the series, Ancient for Tomorrow's Travels. ...line of the third article, which deals... I'm really excited when Robbie and Phil to uh, preach on this Sunday. Um, I knew it was Holy Spirit Sunday. I was like, yes, awesome, let's do that. And so I went uh, to the Apostles' Creed to f- see what it says about the Holy Spirit. So let's just kind of recap together. Um, so it starts with the first article, which is, I believe in, the, in God, the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Awesome. Off to a great start. And in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Whew, there's a lot there. Now's my part. Here we go. I believe in the Holy Spirit. That's it. That's all it's got. <laughs> I was kind of thrown by this. Like, what, Why is it that the, the creed kind of presents such a... Uh, a cogent, if not comprehensive, kind of identifier or profile for the Father and the Son, but then it doesn't do the same for the Holy Spirit. So I started reading, and what I found is that the authors of the Creed weren't alone. It seems to be historically difficult to kind of parse out the role and the nature of the Holy Spirit from God the Father and from Jesus the Son. Gregory of Nazianzus called the Holy Spirit the Theosagraptos, the God that no one writes about. And so, as I sought to kind of study and read about the Holy Spirit, I found that when God's Spirit is written about, it's usually done in terms of His actions. Uh, and what I learned is that this, this isn't an, an accident. This is kind of a feature of the writing. It's, it's sort of difficult to, to extrapolate uh, the, the person of the Holy Spirit from the actions of the Holy Spirit. If I could borrow some phrasing from our friend Forrest Gump, the Spirit is as the Spirit does. The Holy Spirit is the person of God's agency. And so since the Apostles' Creed doesn't really kind of give us uh, any kind of framework to uh, uh, look at the Holy Spirit, we're going to try and kind of do a little bit of that ourselves. Now, like I said, this won't be comprehensive, um, but I think it might, it might be helpful. And so let's go ahead and do that. So firstly, the Spirit is creative. And uh, I don't know if you all remember, but the Holy Spirit kind of makes a cameo earlier in the Apostles' Creed when it talks about Jesus being conceived of the Holy Spirit to the Virgin Mary. And, uh, and so kind of the New Testament starts like the Old Testament does. So in, in Genesis 1, verses 1 through 2, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So we see the Holy Spirit kind of um, with God before creation, brooding over the spirit of the earth and brimming with boundless creative energy. And so... Uh, it starts again in the New Testament kind of the same way, the Spirit brooding over the Virgin Mary with that same kind of uh, potency, that same kind of uh, power. And just as Adam was formed when God breathed his life into him, God does the same thing and and kind of animates Jesus within the womb of Mary. I, I like to often say that the first thing we learn about God in the Bible is that he's creative. In the beginning, God created. It's kind of the first... It's like, a, it's like a big kind of opening salvo. God created. God is a creative being. And I like to say that the first thing we learn about ourselves is that we're made to be like him. We're made in his image. That we, we bear, I think, a big part of kind of bearing the image of God is, is to carry that creative spark. Um, 
that, that, uh, that kind of essence of God's creativity. You know, the World Cup's happening right now. Anybody watching that? Yep. Well, who's your team? Let me hear some teams. Spain. Spain. Yeah. Who said Spain? Right on. Yeah. Germany. Germany? Yeah, they looked good yesterday. Uh, so, I don't know if you ever hear, if you watch soccer, if you don't, we kind of watch it four years in a row, and I think this year, like, 99% of us are skipping it because USA is not in it, so whatever. But if you watch a soccer game, chances are, especially if it's from a Spanish-speaking country, you're going to hear a word either sung or chanted. Does anybody know what that word is? Ole, 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 ole. That's right, ole. And so there's not really any kind of... Um, this word doesn't mean anything. No one really kind of knows where it comes from. It's just kind of this general spontaneous expression when something awesome happens. You know, when, when, a, when someone scores a goal or, you know, um, when someone, uh, you know, makes a great play or does something that kind of um, is ex- ex- exemplary, we, we kind of shout ole. So uh, there's kind of a lot of schools of thought of where that word comes from. One of them comes from kind of when the Moors were in Spain. And um, the belief there is that, uh, that the word came from when they would have these kind of times of creativity. They would, it was typical for um, there to be music and dancing around fire, around a shared meal. And that when a singer or when a dancer or when a musician did something that kind of transcended his or her own skill level, people would call on the name of God, which to the Moors was Allah. And so the word Allah kind of morphed over the years into the word Olay, so that we still kind of do that. When we see someone who kind of reflects or sparks for a moment that creative energy of God, we, we kind of spontaneously kind of call on the name of God. We say, we say Olay, or we say, oh God, or we say, my God. We say, we, when we see that, we recognize it. We, we, we evoke the name of God. Um, and so moving on, the next, we see that the Spirit is unifying. And uh, for that, we're going to look at Genesis 11, 1 through 9, which is the story of the Tower of Babel. I'm going to kind of go through it quickly because it's kind of a long passage. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there and said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered upon the whole face of the earth. And so the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which mortals had built. And the Lord said, Look, they are one people. They have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language there so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there, over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore it was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Now, you might be thinking, this really doesn't make the point that God is unifying very well, right? Like, if, I'm, if I were making the case that God was kind of uh, ununifying, or, like, or that God was anti-unity, this might be... A good example of what I might, I, might, I might use this as an illustration for that. So b- bear with me. Um, who remembers being taught this lesson in Sunday school? This was a big one. This was a big one in Sunday school. You know, you had the felt board, the felt board uh, tower and the little people. Does anyone remember kind of what the lesson was that you learned in Sunday? Like what, what, was, what was the moral? What was the lesson of the story? What, what, was, what was the sin that was being done? Pride, right? Arrogance, hubris, the belief that we could be like God or reach God or something like that. 
The problem is that this isn't actually in the text anywhere. When God looks down and saw what they were doing, he says nothing about their motives, but only about their capability. And I don't want to take away, I mean, I think that's a great lesson. I'm really glad I learned that lesson in Sunday school. So I'm, you know, if we're teaching that over in Upstreet, that's fine. I don't, I don't want to take that away from anyone. That, that's, that's all great. But what God says in this text, he says they are one people. They have one language. This is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing will be impossible for them. So what exactly is God's problem with Babel? What is he seeing that he wants to stop? So by all accounts, Babel would have been kind of one of these uh, classic seven wonders of the world style things. Does anyone remember those? There's like the, the pyramids of Giza. The, yeah, the, the hanging towers of Babylon. Uh, not towers, the hanging gardens of Babylon. There was the Colossus of Rhodes. There are these massive constructions of the ancient world that are mostly gone, but they're described. And so this kind of would have been one of those things that people would have come from far and wide and, and looked upon and just and wondered at. Does anyone know what all of those things have in common other than they're you know, kind of big constructions and probably made of stone? Anybody want to take a guess what they have in common? No? The people who built them didn't volunteer. <laughs> we have a bunch of sign-up sheets out there. No one's going to get conscripted to work in Upstreet. You get to choose. Some of you might be relieved to hear that. I don't know. But we're going, we have sign-up sheets. We, we, people sign up for these things. All of these constructions, when things like this were built back then, they were built one way, and that was through slave labor. When they talk about building bricks and mortar, that's kind of the classic brickyard. That's what they're describing there. And so when God looks down on these things, he's not saying like, wow, these guys are really doing a great job. I'm threatened or insulted, which he's not. He looks down and he says, wow, this is a testament not of what humans can achieve, but what humans are capable of extracting from one another, what humans are capable of inflicting upon one another. The unity of Babel is imperfect. And so God rightly strikes it. Unity that's born on the backs of the oppressed is a unity deserving to be struck apart. And so we're going to kind of skip forward now to the New Testament. And we're going to take a look at the day of Pentecost, which we celebrated, what, about a month ago? Pentecost. And we're going to go ahead and read that, Acts 2, 1 through 13. So the day of, the day of Pentecost comes, and we all kind of all know the story that the, the room is filled with a, a rushing wind and tongues of fire appear on the, the disciples that were gathered there. And it says that all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them the ability. And that there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And as they heard this sound, they came and remarkably bewildered. They hear them speaking their own language. Every person there kind of hears their own language being spoken. Now, a lot of theologians have made the case that Pentecost sort of represents a reversal of Babel, that the division of language that God instituted in Babel was lost, and somehow we regained that in Pentecost. And, and I think it's helpful to look at these as kind of parallel events, but I don't think that what we lost in Babel is a one-to-one -one comparison to what we gained in Pentecost. Here's why I think that. The miraculousness of Pentecost was that everybody heard in their own language. You see, the human unity of Babel was kind of coerced conformity. It was coerced uniformity. It wasn't unity. Human unity is uniformity. 
Human unity is where diversity goes to die. And so the remarkable thing about Babel is not that we all regained this one kind of universal human language. The miracle of Babel is that it, it I'm sorry, Pentecost, not Babel, I got mixed up there. Uh, the, the miracle of Pentecost is that it, it, it preserves what makes us different. It preserves our diversity. Pentecost cherishes and respects what makes us different. And the work of the Holy Spirit between Babel and Pentecost is to unwork kind of this, this false sense of unity that we got that was coercive and, and that was oppressive and then give us kind of God's true unity through Pentecost in which what makes us different isn't a liability, it's, it's an asset. Thirdly, God is revealing. Sorry, the Holy Spirit is revealing. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this because I'm confident that many of us are kind of aware of this aspect of the Holy Spirit. Usually when we kind of find some hidden nugget of wisdom in Scripture or when we have kind of a personal breakthrough or when a realization dawns on us that, that helps us kind of heal a relationship, we, we're pretty apt as believers to attribute that to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit kind of reveals those things to us. Um, but all the same, I, I want to I just point at this one thing real quick, um, and that's in the Confession of Peter found in Matthew 16, 13 through 20. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, what do people say the Son of Man is? Sorry, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jodah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. So we hear in this time that Peter kind of confesses uh, that he, it's been revealed to him who Jesus is. He, he, re, he kind of confesses the Christhood of Jesus. And Jesus says that Simon Peter is blessed because this was revealed to him by God and not by a person. And this is kind of an interesting point. I, I don't know if you've ever kind of encountered this where you try to kind of convince somebody of something and they, they don't get it, but then they sort of figure it out on their own and for some reason it's way more meaningful than when you try to teach it to them. Does anyone know what they're talking about? I'll give you an example. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of the show Arrested Development. Anybody know? Yeah? Woo! Yeah. Uh, it's one of my favorite shows. It's got to be top uh, five for me, probably. And so when Carol and I got married, I got really excited. I was like, oh, you haven't seen this show. I love this show. You're going to love it. You're going to love it. It's the best. The characters are so funny, and the jokes, like the setup for jokes are like seasons before the punchlines, and it's all interwoven, and it's great. And, uh, and so she kind of was like, all right, you know, she watched it. She's like, I don't get it. And she didn't, she didn't get into it. I, I, much to my frustration, I could not get her to like Arrested Development. But a year, maybe two years later, uh, another one of her friends kind of says like, hey, uh, you ever watched that show Arrested Development? And Carol's like, no, tell me more about it. And all of a sudden, she's super interested. And she got super, super into it. And now everything's good. Our marriage is going to survive. Everything's fine. <laughs> So uh, it is more meaningful when a person kind of uh, like arrives at a revelation or arrives at a discovery uh, more so than it being shown. That's just kind of a little side point there. Uh, but Jesus doesn't stop there. He continues after blessing Simon Peter. He says, and I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the, kingdoms of, uh, the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on the earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on the earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Do, do you see what kind of happened here? That Peter confesses 
Jesus' Christhood. He says, I believe that you're the Messiah. And Jesus blesses Peter, but goes on to not only affirm that identity, but he gives Peter a new identity. That in, in revealing who Christ is and understanding and, and confessing who Christ is, we don't only know, get to know who Christ is, we get to know who we are. The Holy Spirit reveals our own identity to us. That there's not, I, I, what I submit to you today is that there is no way to know who we are, to truly know who we are created to be, except for in acknowledgement of Jesus as Christ. <clears throat> Lastly, we uh, acknowledge that the Spirit is empowering. I mentioned earlier that in antiquity, the Holy Spirit was referred to as the God that nobody writes about. And for centuries, the church in the East had kind of, you know, not together unfairly criticized the church in the West of being kind of uh, too Christ-centered, that we were almost uh, a kind of Christomonist, that we, that, we, um, that we focused too much on the person of Jesus and we kind of disregarded God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And so I think one of the main contributions that Pentecostalism has kind of brought to our faith is that the Holy Spirit kind of gets invited into the conversation through that. And I grew up in a church that was very Pentecostal. Uh, I, want, I, I really identify a lot when Robbie talks about uh, his kind of experience growing up in church. It sounds a lot like mine. We're, it was very charismatic. Uh, and in that particular circle, it was very common to talk about the Holy Spirit as being empowering. I mean, we would prophesy over each other, and we would lay hands on each other, and we'd pray for the Spirit to, to embolden us and to enable us to do great things. And I mean, it was, it was, we used language like... Uh, like planet shakers and world changers, and we wanted to set the world on fire, whatever that means. <laughs> We're like spiritual arsonists. God, we, want, God, we wanted God to use us to do great things. This was kind of the, the motif of my entire youth, was that God was going to empower you to do great things. Again, that's, I'm, I'm not trying to discredit that. M- much like Robbie, I, I, I identify very much with the faith tradition that I came up from, and I, I do consider myself Pentecostal in my roots. Uh, so, and yes, when, when God does, when people do great things for God, it is God's Spirit that enables them to do that. There is no other way to kind of do those things. But I want to take a look at a passage that might give us kind of a different perspective on what being empowered by the Spirit might look like. This story immediately follows the baptism of Jesus, where the Spirit descends on him like a dove, and he hears a voice saying, You are my Son, whom I love, and whom I am well pleased. Jesus, full of the Spirit, left the Jordan, was led led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for forty days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all of their authority and splendor. It's been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it'll all be yours. And Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Finally, the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple and said, If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift up their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all his tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. A couple of things here. First, it's worth mentioning in the text that Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit. The next time you enter into a time of trial or a time of testing or a time of difficulty, 
Don't discount the possibility that it's the spirit that led you there. That's not the point I'm trying to make. That one's for free. <laughs> Secondly, I find it interesting that Satan doesn't make an appeal to Jesus' humanity. The things he tempts Jesus with aren't what we might call human sins. He's, it's not like he's saying, hey, Jesus, you should totally dishonor your father and mother. Or like, hey, Jesus, you know what's a ton of fun to do? Murder. Like, he's not being tempted by kind of those things that we would consider like the chief, you know, the commandment, the big ones, you know? And the difference is that when Jesus eventually does miraculously produce bread, it's to feed others and not himself. When he does eventually defy and defeat death, it's not in service of his own greatness, but it's, it's as the resurrected Christ, as Robbie talked about last week. The story of Jesus' temptation isn't about the Holy Spirit enabling Jesus to do great things. It's about enabling Jesus to do the right thing. And I think that for us, that's just as important. I, I, I don't want to say that, you know, hey, none of us are going to do great things. I want to do great things. That's a great thing. That's a great goal to have, a great ambition to have. We might not all have opportunities to topple Goliaths or Jerichos. We might not have a chance to kind of cross the Red Sea or outrun a chariot. But each and every single one of us, every single day, has the opportunity to do the right thing. To do, make, to do the good thing. The Holy Spirit can enable you to make those choices, and that's no less meaningful than doing great things. The text says that Jesus left the wilderness full of the power of the Spirit, that this experience being tempted somehow prepared him for and launched him into this ministry. And yes, Jesus did go on to do great deeds and miracles, but his greatness was always matched by his goodness. In the Bible, human history is littered with people whose greatness outstrips their goodness. I mean, the earth is full of their bones. They're all dead. It doesn't go well for them. Jesus alone was the one whose goodness matched his greatness. In Hebrews 4, 15 through 16, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The Holy Spirit empowers us to do the right thing. Uh, I want to leave you with this one last thought. The image here that's going to be up on the screen in a moment uh, is an icon painted in the 15th century by an artist named Andrei Rublev. Um, it's by far his greatest uh, masterpiece and it's kind of considered by many to be sort of the, the pinnacle of, of Russian art. And it depicts an event in the Bible that happens in, in Genesis, um, I, I believe, uh, in Genesis 11. Uh, but it's, it's called the Hospitality of Abraham. In, in this event, the Lord appears to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting in the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing there. So... The Lord appears to Abraham, and Abraham sees him as three people. I think that's really interesting. Uh, this kind of sermon, this first line of this third article of the, uh, of the um, Apostles' Creed sort of closes the chapter in which we, we uh, are looking at the, the persons of the Trinity. And so each person here it represents a, uh, a member of the Godhead, uh, on the left, you have the figure clothed in golden robes. And this is God the Father, and sort of represents his divinity. In the center, you have Jesus, who's wrapped in blue robes. The blue is meant to represent his humanity. And then finally, on the right, you have the Holy Spirit 
who's wrapped in green, and that's supposed to kind of depict the, uh, um, you know, the spirit being verdant and being kind of the giver of life. And so the, these three form a circle, but not a closed circle. In the story, it says that when Abraham set a table for them to eat, he, he set everything out, and then he went and he stood under a tree at a distance, and Sarah, it says, was inside of a tent. And these three ate alone. Abraham couldn't envision for himself a place at the table with the three. And like I mentioned, these three form a circle, but it's not a closed circle. If you, if you pay attention here at the table, there's that, sort of that rectangular shape there underneath the cup. Well, that is kind of an interesting feature of the painting. Uh, art historians, and, and when they restored this painting, they found that there's glue there. Um, thank you. Which is kind of an unusual thing for there to be on a, on a fresco like this one. And what some people speculated was that either the artist or someone after the artist uh, had a mirror there. So that the observer would come and behold this painting and they would see themselves. A fourth being created out of the unity, out of the, the, the bond of peace and the bond of love, as Karl Barth says, of the Trinity. That we're invited to that table. The Holy Spirit, I think, meaningfully is kind of gesturing down at that spot and invites you. That Abraham couldn't envision for himself a place at the table, but for you, a way has been made.